0: Hey there, friends, family, and lurkers alike. This is your host, Daniel Minnick, for another exciting episode of Truth Espresso. And I'm going solo for this episode because I'm going to resurrect some notes that I had for a Sunday school lesson that I began to teach um, a little over two years ago. And that was a little bit before COVID happened, and kind of changed things with where we could meet for church. Uh, eventually, the structure of things changed, and I no longer was uh, teaching Sunday school. The different uh, classes changed. Eventually, when we were able to meet in a different building, but the notes for this lesson are actually to continue and to conclude the series that I began on Truth Espresso quite a while ago. It seemed if you listen to the episodes on answering the question, "Is Jesus like your favorite superhero?" That was a, a series of lessons that I was teaching in Sunday school at my church, uh, in an adult Sunday school class. And I began to teach this particular lesson eventually after a break. And so kind of like that, I'm going to teach this one once again here on Truth Espresso after a break from my series on is Jesus like a superhero because this one's a little bit different it happens actually several hundred years later from the last episode when a lot of things were happening about answering the question what is Jesus like and so it's okay if I take a break from that but now to get back and to conclude it because this is one question that Involved a lot of strife, it involved a lot of persecution, and of course, involved a lot of politics. And what makes this episode different is the fact that I could not find a superhero for this one. But do not be dismayed, I did find a comic person, but he's not a superhero, he's actually a super villain. <laughs> yes, I did not just lightly pick a super villain. Because I wanted to pick a supervillain. I picked a supervillain because I searched long and hard. I even came up with one barely known superhero, but he seemed to have like a multi personality disorder, and that just didn't fit the bill here. So I was left with my initial inclination of a supervillain. And of course, uh, you know asking if jesus is like a supervillain. of course you know no one's going to say yes to that but i'm not looking at this particular super villain in terms of what his life was like and what side of the good bad divide he's on but kind of more of an ontological illustration because that's what this series of episodes is about is trying to find a character to which our minds could relate and see as an analogy to understand an historical concept And so, this episode is about answering the question, is Jesus like Dr. Octopus, or Doc Ock, as he's nicknamed in the Spider-Man comic book series and movies, So, you're probably familiar with uh, who Dr. Octopus is, but if you are not, I will give a little brief synopsis about him. So, who is Dr. Octopus, or Doc Ock? Well, Doc Ock was created originally in a 1963 Spider-Man comic. Um, His full human name is Dr. Otto Gunther Octavius. And he was uh, quite a genius. He's uh, somewhat associated with Osborne Industries. He created a contraption with four long mechanical arms to help him to be more efficient with lab experience. Because he was a, a feisty inventor. And not only did he want to invent things, but he wanted to invent things that would actually then help him further event things more Efficiently, And so, why did he create a harness that has four long mechanical arms that are almost like octopus tentacles? Well, it would help him reach things further away without having to have to walk over and grab things all the time. He was all about getting things done and getting them done quickly. And another advantage is if he's dealing with dangerous chemicals, instead of having to put gloves on and risk spilling something on him, if he had shaky hands or something like that, he could just will his, uh, one of his tentacles over and grab a chemical from far away and maybe put it into a test tube or you know a pot or something like that. And if it spills, well, hey, it spills on the metal and it doesn't spill on his Flesh. So he had a good idea in inventing that harness. And so, what happened one time during a lab experiment is that, you know, how often happens (laughs) that creates some of these amazing people, superheroes, supervillains in comic books is that an accident happens in a laboratory. And so, that happens with Dr. Octopus as he's doing an experiment, an accident happens, which then causes the contraption, the harness with the four tentacles to fuse permanently to his body and as a result also he has a vision problem of myopia or nearsightedness and he often is seen wearing dark shades because his, his eyes could be sensitive to light. He's also known physically to be uh, shorter and stockier than the average person but that seems to fit with the physique of him, you know, kind of looking more like an octopus as the arms are fused permanently to his body and now, you know, with two arms, two legs, and then four arms that extend out uh, mechanically that then he has a total of eight appendages and that's why he's called Dr. Octopus. And, of course, they intentionally made his name Otto and Octavius kind of to just flow off the tongue and sound more like an octopus <laughs> octavius doc oct he's already doc Oct before his nickname of octopus so yeah that's that's it's pretty creative there <laughs> and you've probably seen the spider-man series in the 2000s with toby mcguire and spider-man 2 is the one that has dr octopus as the villain on it So, now that we've asked and answered the question, who is Dr. Octopus or Doc Ock, how is Jesus like Doc Ock? You know, now before we just chuckle and say, are you serious? Yeah, let me count the ways how he's not like Doc Ock. Yes, I know, Doc Ock wasn't incarnated, you know, at conception and, you know, Doc Ock is a villain and does bad things and Jesus was sinless so they couldn't be more at odds that way but forget the criminality and forget the lab accidents and experiments and stuff like that forget occupation i'm just trying to deal with answering the question using him as an illustration for ontology so what do we have with dr octopus is he human Well, it would appear to be he's not like Superman, you know, where Superman looked like a human but wasn't human. Dr. Octopus genuinely is a full human being. And Dr. Octopus being the combination of the human with the arms. Now, let's think about the arms. They're super strong. They're nearly indestructible. They're like having a superpower right uh, attached to them. So, you might think of the harness with the four mechanical arms as kind of a super nature in and of itself, or divine nature. (laughs) You know, let's think of superpowers or stuff like that as uh, a divine nature. So... With Dr. Octopus, we have a full human, we have a full divine nature, including the ability of it to do things on its own, in a sense, with a will, (laughs) and they're both attached together, but there's only one person. There isn't two persons talking to each other, there's only one person there. With two full natures, as convoluted as this is and as it sounds, have we come up with some kind of comic book character that could represent an ontological illustration of Jesus? (laughs) You know, it's hard for me not to laugh, but, you know, you get the point here. Because remember, at the Council of Chalcedon, what was the problem with Eutychianism from the last... A uh, series of lessons answering the question: Is Jesus like Captain America? Because so with Captain America, you had a human being, and he was injected with a super soldier serum. And so, you know, you still had one person there. But we asked the question: Did he have two full natures? Because he had a superhuman ability, but you know, he was still had elements of humanity. You know, he could still be hurt. He could still bleed. Yeah, he still had some semblance of humanity and he had some semblance of divinity or superpowers. But the problem with Captain America is an illustration, as the Council of Chalcedon in 451 determined, that the two natures are kind of mixed together, fused together in a way that there's really only one divino, humano nature. You know, sure, he's one person. That was correct compared to the previous Council of Ephesus only 20 years before then, 431, which was asking the question, is Jesus like the Incredible Hulk, where you had one Body there, but you had two persons, the two natures each had their own person inhabiting one body. You know, so the Incredible Hulk, Gollum, or Dr. Jekyll and Mr Hyde were kind of illustrations of that error, and then Captain America, or then even Spider Man in this case would be an illustration of Eutychianism or Monophysitism, the idea of one nature as a result of the two. So, Jesus, according to Chalcedon and Christian Orthodoxy, has to be one person with two full and distinct natures. So, now we move over 200 years later, to the question well now we have a proposal that will be coming up that says yes we agree that jesus is one person with two natures but then there's a squabble over the idea of the will and can jesus have just one will or did he have two wills did jesus have one will and is the will a component of personhood Or did Jesus have two wills and the will corresponds with the nature so that he has to have both a human and a divine will to be fully human or fully divine? And that was the question that then came up. So what about Dr. Octopus? Does this adequately illustrate The one person with two natures thing. Is it, you know, as silly as this is, as convoluted as this is, is this a mental picture that helps us to understand one person with two full natures and have an an orthodox uh, rendering of Jesus ontologically? Well, then, as I mentioned before, spider-man 2 in 2004 with toby mcguire there dr octavius explained that he built an inhibitor chip into the harness so that he could control the arms as needed with his will and then as he was doing the demonstration there with the experiment with the energy It got out of hand and then the accident happened and it caused the inhibitor chip on the back near his uh, neck to break and the harness fused to his body. And so what happened then was that the arms, the artificial intelligence of the divine nature, the super harness there with the arms, his human will was suppressed by the will of the arms. And so the arms influenced him to do things that helped the arms and made him uh, turn to crime and steal money so that he can uh, resume his uh, energy experiment. So, what we have here in this illustration from this rendering of Dr. Octopus in Spider-Man 2, the 2004 movie with Tobey Maguire, is that you have two wills. There's the will of the arms, and then there's the will of Dr. Octavius, but then eventually you end up with one active will. (laughs) So thus, only the super or the divine will was active at the time when he was the bad guy Doc Ock, not thinking straight and having the one will of the arms active. And then, if you remember, if you watch that movie, Spider-Man, toward the end of it, had to appeal to the dormant human will in Dr. Octavius to get him to come out and control the arms so he can do the right thing and destroy the energy source so that it didn't destroy the city. And essentially, then, Dr. Octopus, as Doc Ock, as the villain we all know and Love or hate or whatever, Doc Ock is one person with two full natures. It seems, but only the divine nature, the super nature, was present or active. His human will, whether present or not, you know, was dormant and inactive, and only one will was active during the time that he's Doc Ock. So, as I mentioned before, the question of this issue is. Is the faculty of will a component of the nature or of the person? And you might think that this is splitting hairs. You might think that this is answering the question, how many angels can dance in the head of the pin? Who cares? You know, this is just something that philosophers or theologians sitting in monasteries or whatever in the silence of their own homes and libraries or what have you, just spending idle time thinking up convoluted and contrived things that have no bearing on practicality or even practicality Practical truth that's the way it might seem but believe it or not people gave their lives for this <laughs> in history in the 7th century this was <laughs> one of the biggest <laughs> issues going on at the time and it was explosively important and there are political reasons for it. There were political reasons to get people never to talk about this issue in public. And you might say, well, I could care less if there's a law saying you can't talk about whether Jesus has one will or two wills, then. You know, who cares? It's not hard for me to comply with. But there were people who realized that this was an attack on truth. And really, just like all the controversies before, it came down to answering the question, could Jesus save me if he had only one will? (laughs) And so, over the issue of whether Jesus had one will or two wills, people were whipped Imprisoned, they had tongues cut off, hands cut off, they were starved, they would bleed from their wounds. This was a brutal punishment against people just making an issue of this issue. And that was mostly political, but even looking at things like this, we have to thank God for the heroes of the faith who are willing to stand up and proclaim truth, even for things that seem to be as minor as this. Because without them, who knows what you know we would have today. But the reason that people stood up for the orthodoxy in this issue is the exact same reason that people stood up for orthodoxy in every controversy over who is Jesus from the beginning of church history. It's the same reason that they gave. So, now I want to get into just asking the question, how does this relate to the Trinity? How does it relate to Jesus being one person with two natures? And we'll look at some scriptures to consider that, I argue, help out with understanding that Jesus actually has two wills, not just one will. He didn't just have a divine will. He had a divine and human will, and the scriptures actually demonstrate that this is true and that it's actually necessary for the atonement. So, Starting with the Trinity, as we looked at before, when we asked the question, is Jesus like Ant-Man? We had to understand that there is one God with three distinct, co-equal, and co-eternal persons. So, the Trinity is three persons with one divine nature. And so, what about the matter of the will? The Bible does talk about God having a will. This is the will of God, that you abstain from fornication. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. There, there are statements talking about God having a will. And what does God refer to? God refers to what something is. God refers to the one being of God. Now, sometimes it'll be a shortcut to refer to specifically the person of the Father as the autarch the fountainhead of salvation, the one whom we understand as revealed in Scripture when referring to Yahweh. But then in the New Testament, we have the revelation of the Trinity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we normally think of God as Father in Malachi, and the Father is the one who gives the commands and punishes and so on. But if the Trinity is true, if God is three persons with one nature, how do we relate those persons and that nature when it comes to the idea of will? So, does each person have a will that can be distinguished from each other? In other words, could the persons of the Trinity disagree with each other? (laughs) Well, that comes to this issue at hand in the 7th century, because this is what people would debate about, because we also have to understand, what do we mean by will? Because when someone performs an action as a person we can see what they do as a manifestation of their will but then what about the will as a source of actions for instance we understand that humanity has fallen our will each of our individual wills has been affected by the fall and you have statements like in genesis 6 they did evil only continually you know you have statements like in the new testament about how you know can a leopard change his spots or the Ethiopian's skin? How are those who are accustomed to doing evil do good? You have statements about the, the will, you know, being a slave to sin and so on. So you have an aspect of understanding will as something that's a source of action and then you also have an understanding of will that is manifested in the actions that are performed and that's actually also <laughs> it may seem like nitpicking it may be the angels on the pin thing but this is actually very important to understanding the trinity and the incarnation so with the trinity you have three persons with one divine nature Now, what about the will? Well, as this issue, as is Jesus like Dr. Octopus, was being debated, you had people arguing for two aspects of will. You have the natural will, or the component of the will that pertains to the nature, and then you had the hypostatic will, or the personal will. So, remember, the Trinity is that God is three persons, one nature are you just watching you grab the popcorn plant the family on the couch and flip on the tv but have you left your worldview behind media comes in all forms and all of it contains some level of indoctrination are you just watching the entertain christians handbook to consuming media with purpose is a guided journal with worldview shaping info and lots of guided note pages to help you watch and discuss anything you put before your family's eyes purchase it now on amazon.com and don't just watch Now, when we ask, where does the will reside or what is the will? Well, you have the natural will and the personal will. So, we have a component of will that pertains to nature and we have a component of will that pertains to the person. And you might then think, well, that just sounds like special pleading. It sounds like appeasement. It sounds like dividing up the will. Well, okay let's give this illustration the the best illustration i can come up with this is to think of bank accounts so a bank account is a source of funds and you know that's different from say withdrawing or spending things to perform things you know i bought this i gave this i deposited this of course this is not a perfect illustration but it'll give you the idea So if you have a bank account, you know, that bank account can be your natural will. That is the source from which you would then perform actions. And of course, if you have a little bit of money in your bank account, naturally that affects the actions that you do uh, with that source. And so think of... um, a statement like if you you know had a printed statement mailed to you for your month's transactions or you know most likely you log into an app on your phone and then you look at your transactions and you see what did you actually do with that source you actually performed these actions you had these withdrawals you had these deposits you paid bills And so on. So, the bank account itself can correspond to your natural will. It's what you possess as a source of actions. And then the ledger, the statement, you know, the bookkeeping, the record of actions reflects your personal will it demonstrates how you as a person draw from the source of your will and actualize it into the statements into the transactions so when we ask the question what's the will of god you know there is a you know a source a you know if we want to conceptualize this as it pertains to God with the Trinity, I would suggest the scriptures demonstrate that all three persons of the Trinity share one natural will of God. you have the divine will, so all three persons of the Trinity are in perfect harmony as it pertains to what is true you know they're not going to disagree with each other about what is true they are in perfect harmony that way no one's going to break the will of the other they all have that one divine will that natural will that source for divine actions And now, when we get to the three persons of the Trinity, we see the economic Trinity. So, the natural will, nature, ontology. You might have heard terms referring to the ontological trinity, and the economic trinity. So, the ontological trinity is where you have one divine natural will. So, there is one perfect will of God that the three persons share exhaustively, and as they perform actions, the actions come from the natural will, the one natural will of God, the divine will. And so, all three persons are in perfect harmony. They'll never disagree with each other, and they'll never fight with each other. But now, as the three persons, we get from the ontological trinity to the economic trinity, we see a lot of statements in the Bible, in the New Testament, about the roles that each of these persons take, including the son being submissive to the father The Holy Spirit not speaking of himself, but speaking of Christ, regenerating the heart. The Father draws people, gives them to the Son. The Son keeps them. The Son loses none. The Son raises them up at the last day, as we see explained deeply in John chapter 6. And we see the Holy Spirit described in John chapters 14 and 16 and the role that the Holy Spirit plays as another Comforter comforter when jesus ascends to heaven and sits at the right hand of god the father and rules and reigns in heaven over earth until he makes his enemies his footstool and then eventually he returns to earth to rule and reign on earth and you have the new earth but then during this time the holy spirit has his ministry the holy spirit's role is different the holy spirit (laughs) doesn't seek praise of himself, he points people to the Son, He points people to the Father, regenerates the heart, convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and we see the manifestation, you know, at the baptism of Jesus, each of the three persons takes different roles, performs different roles, so they have their own distinct personal will. And the personal will corresponds to, as you would think, of a transaction statement representing actions performed from the source. And so <laughs> I hope this is making sense, but this is the this is the best illustration that I have. So you have one account. <laughs> you, basically, if you think of the divine nature of God, you have one bank account, and then you have three separate accounts transaction statements you know you have the father's transactions the son's transactions and the holy spirit's transactions statements there reflecting their personal will the roles they perform the actions they perform but they all reflect the same divine will natural will from the same bank account (laughs) So, I hope that helps to understand that the Trinity are in perfect agreement and harmony, reflecting the one natural divine will of God, and that the three persons take different roles, perform different actions from that will, reflecting their individual personal will, and that's the economic Trinity. And then this illustration then helps as we move from the Trinity to the Incarnation, because now the Trinity, remember, you have one nature and three persons. But then with the Incarnation, you have Jesus with that same divine nature. But now Jesus is the one person, the second person of the Trinity. He's the one person there with two full natures, divine and human. So now, if we take that understanding of natural will and personal will, then for Jesus to be fully, truly human and fully, truly God, he has two full natural wills. So, he has a divine will and he has a human will. So, Jesus has two different bank accounts, as it will. To give this illustration, let's think of this, that Jesus has two different bank accounts. One of them is the divine bank account, and the other is the human bank account. I hope you're following me here, but, you know, (laughs) this is the best way I can explain it. Two bank accounts, two natural wills, two sources of willful actions. But then since he's one singular person, let's say, just imagine that you have a transaction statement that reflects transactions that come, that interpolate, that, you know, demonstrate actions coming from both bank accounts on one statement. So you have divine actions and human actions, and they're all reflected in how this personal will has used them all together you know for a series of actions so you have jesus sleeping in the boat and this is a result of you know his human will and getting tired and his human nature and needing sleep but then you also have him waking up and then calming the sea And, you know, the disciples say, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And this is the divine will manifesting itself through that same one person of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus' transaction statement shows being tired and sleeping. It also shows calming the sea and the storm, the wind. you know it shows him being hungry and thirsty. it shows him breaking bread and feeding uh, thousands of people. you know it shows him walking on water. <laughs> It shows him crying when Lazarus died. <laughs> it shows him also saying that the will of God will be performed and that you need to have faith I am the resurrection and the life. Do so you see one statement? (laughs) One transaction statement, one personal transaction statement showing a perfect harmony, a personal harmony of actions that come from two separate bank accounts. But these two separate bank accounts are owned and functioned by the same person and the transaction statement showing all those, you know, the amalgamation amazingly of divine and human actions fully through one person, there you have the illustration of two natural wills, divine and human, and one hypostatic or one personal will, the transaction statement. So, I hope that this helps you to understand this. And as I continue this on the next episode for part two, we'll get into really in depth why this is necessary. Like you might think, okay, Daniel, I get it. I understand that the illustration helps. But still, that doesn't mean it's true. That doesn't mean it's necessary. Why does it have to be that way? Well, we'll really get into that in the next episode. As we get into history, as we get into how people suffered (laughs) for this, basically. But we'll also, of course, get into answering the question, what's wrong with monothelitism? The idea that Jesus only had a divine will and not a human will also. And, of course, spoiler alert, heads up, the answer will be substitutionary atonement. (laughs) Now... First, to end this episode, I want to get into scriptures that I see actually teach the idea that Jesus had two distinct wills, that Jesus, in fact, did have a distinct divine will and a distinct human will. Remember, we're talking about natural wills. He didn't have two personal wills. He wasn't two persons. He was one person with two natures, and each of those natures have the component of will. Each of those natures has the natural will, the source of actions. So first, I want to see that Jesus had the same divine will with the Father. Now, if we look at John chapter 5, verses 17 through 23... You have Jesus healing someone on the Sabbath day and in verse 17 it says, but Jesus answered them, my father worketh hitherto and I work or my father is working until now and I am working showing that they're both doing the same things. And now verse 18, Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead, and quickeneth them, or maketh them alive, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. That all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoureth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. So I want to focus on verse 19 where Jesus says the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do for what things the father does, the son also does. So we have Jesus and the father working in perfect harmony and remember that Jesus in the, in verse 17 said the father's working until now and I am working referring to divine things on the sabbath day but he said the son can do nothing of himself Now, think about it. How many people disobey God and sin and break God's law? Well, that shows that as a distinct human being who has just a human will, we do things differently from the Father. We do things of ourselves via our human flawed natural will, and we do sin. But Jesus said that the Son can do nothing of himself. But what is in harmony with the Father? Now, that seems to reflect the fact that Jesus shared a will with the Father. That Jesus was unable to do anything that would differ from the Father pertaining to divine actions. Here, Jesus is explaining, because the Jews said that, you know, he's making himself equal with God. Now, Unitarians want to argue that Jesus shot down their accusation by saying, I, the Son could do nothing of himself, showing his dependence on the Father. And it's true that he has dependence on the Father in pertaining to, you know, submission, uh, the incarnation. But does Jesus really shoot down their accusation? Or does he kind of elaborate on how that works? That he's a human right there doing divine things. He explains that I and the Father work together on the Sabbath day because the Jews understood that the Father always works. The Father never stops doing the divine things such as the sun coming up and going down. Even on the Sabbath day, all nature works, and God's in charge of nature, and so God divinely works on the Sabbath. But Jesus says, I and the Father are working together on the Sabbath. (laughs) Remember Jesus also says that for the son is lord of the sabbath. And that's interesting. You know, Jesus, who were you when God laid the foundation of the earth as Jehovah God tells Job, but Jesus says he's lord of the sabbath. But yet, the son can do nothing of himself. But what he sees the Father do, and now you have this perfect harmony that the Father and Son do the same things. The Father and Son both raise the dead. In fact, the Father commits all judgment to the Son. So this seems to be a shared divine will, and Jesus cannot depart from the will of the Father because they have this divine will in common. Let's also look at number two, that Jesus has a distinct human will from the divine will of the Father. So, in the context of John 5 here, we're talking about divine actions and when it comes to divine actions there is no squabble there is no you know separation jesus and the father do the same things jesus can do nothing but what the father tells him, and and they both see and they both do the same things there's perfect harmony there and now we look at matthew chapter 26 verses 38 through 39 and this is the garden of gethsemane so it says, And he, Jesus, took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. That shows his human nature there as he's looking toward the cross. And verse 38, Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here, and watch with me. And then he went a little further, and fell on his face, and prayed. So, this is an action of human action toward God and prayed saying, "O oh my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. So, you see Jesus acknowledging a distinct will from the father, but how is he doing that? It's in the process of being sorrowful as human uh, sorrowful and struggling there because he's, you know, he's a he feels like he's going to die because the cross is coming up. And theologians will talk about what was Jesus sorrowful about, but let's focus on the fact that as human, he was sorrowful, and then he prayed to the Father as an act of worship as human toward God, and he says, "Nevertheless, not as I will, but as Thou wilt." So Jesus could not reject the Father's will, but he demonstrated a distinct human will in worship and prayer to his God. And this is saying, not as I will, but as you will. And of course, we know that Jesus went to the cross willingly and necessarily, and, you know, the divine will would be accomplished, and Jesus was not compelled, but he did express the distinct human will in sorrow and prayer and worship to his God. We also see Hebrews chapter 10, verses 7 through 9, where we see the humanity of Jesus speaking to God. He says, Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Above, when he said sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin, thou wouldest not, or you you didn't desire, neither hadst pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. And it's talking about the covenant there the first co- the old covenant and he institutes the new covenant by his blood but As a matter of prophecy, of divine will, you have the will of God expressed in what Jesus would do. And as human, Jesus recognizes, I come, it is written of me to do your will, O God. And he did, in fact, do the will of God as Jesus with the divine will that he shares exhaustively with the Father. In John 5, he says, I can do nothing of myself. So as human he comes to do the will of God, as divine, he and the Father do the same things, and he could do nothing of himself he heau to apart from the Father. So what about the question of temptation? So point number three, God cannot be tempted, but man can be. We see this clearly spelled out. In James chapter one verses thirteen through sixteen. So, James says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. For every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. So James is appealing to his human readership and saying that no one can blame God for being tempted with sin or to do evil acts, for God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither does he tempt anyone. So if God cannot be tempted with evil... Then what about Jesus? Wasn't Jesus tempted with evil? Well, if he was, then if he only had a divine will, then he couldn't be tempted to do evil. He couldn't be tempted to sin as something that, like, oh man, how am I going to handle this? I just might slip up and do it. No, God cannot be tempted with evil. We see clearly in James. And now, point four the Son was incarnate so that he can be tempted as a human. And we see in Hebrews chapter 2, and I brought this up on previous episodes. But it's most manifest for this question here because it's specifically about will. So, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 16 through 18, it says, For verily he, referring to Jesus, took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. So, he didn't become incarnate as an angel to save angels. He took on the seed of Abraham or humanity to save humanity. Verse 17, Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like to his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So, verse 17 says that it behooved him to be made like his brethren in all things. So, Here's the question. If Jesus did not have the natural human will, then could we really say that he was made like his brethren in all things? And then we're going to see in the next verse how it explains that Jesus had to be a, have a human will. Well, verse 17 says that he did this so that he can make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So, we see that it's important that Jesus have a full, entire, 100% human incarnation to be the Savior. And now verse 18 says, For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. So this is very clear in Hebrews that the incarnation he took on the nature of the seed of Abraham in all things he was made like his brethren so that he can be a a faithful high priest to god and so that he can make reconciliation for the sins of the people and so that he can suffer being tempted so that he could comfort those who are tempted so we see that it is absolutely utterly important for jesus to have an uncompromised incarnation he was 100% god and 100% Man and to be one hundred per cent man, he had to have a human will so that he could suffer being tempted because we see in James chapter one God cannot be tempted with evil. But we see Jesus being led of the spirit into the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4 to be tempted by the devil. And Jesus resisted that temptation. But if he just had a divine will, Satan couldn't tempt him. But if he has the human will, Satan can tempt him. And so I hope that this part one of answering the question is Jesus like Doc Ock. <laughs> I hope Doc Ock was a decent enough illustration of what we're talking about. And I hope that the bank account and the statement illustration help to understand and to illustrate the natural will as a source of actions. And the personal will as the will actualized and to understand the difference between the will as it relates to a nature and the will as it relates to the person possessing the nature. I know that this might be a little bit overwhelming, but I really hope that these illustrations helped because then we're going to, in the next part, in the next episode, look at the history and see how many people suffered and all the politics surrounding this very question that we're talking about. Did Jesus have one will or two wills? So stay tuned for the next episode for Is Jesus Like Dr. Octopus Part 2? And God bless. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey, friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts. Stitcher or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso